Uh, the Bible reading is from uh, 1 Thessalonians, chapter 5. Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate, and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer with wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that, whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as, in fact, you are doing. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard and love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive, encourage the disheartened, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit, do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good. Reject every kind of evil. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Brothers and sisters, pray for us. Greet all God's people with a holy kiss. I charge you before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers and sisters. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for that passage. And may now you speak to us through it, and certainly may parts of it, um, become very clear that there are areas in our lives that you want to be working on in us. We ask and pray, Lord, in Jesus' name. Everybody said? We're going to begin with chapter 4 and verse 13. Um, and I'll read to you that in a moment, but before I do, let me give a word of explanation of what we are about to do, and I may modify slightly. Normally when we teach the scriptures here, we read the scriptures and then we teach from that passage, um, being true to its outline and so normally we have like a theme or a consistent something tying it together and it's like having a meal which has you know protein and some two or three vegetables and we also like to sweeten it with a gravy or some sauce sometimes and so each mouthful is very similar and and it makes sense you know what you ate you know what you're talking about well this morning's passage 
is so diverse that it's a bit like having, I think I said in the first term, it's a bit like having a stir-fry. <clears throat> and with a stir-fry, you've got a bowl of salad beside it. And beside the salad, you've also got another bowl of mixed vegetables. And we're having it all. So you're going to get salad, stir-fry, and mixed vegetables. And you get to pick which part of it you want what God is going to speak to you about. Does that make sense? No, not really. Okay. Glad I could clarify something for you. Um, when it comes to the issue of the second coming, which is what we're about to read about right now, it's interesting that many of us are certainly stimulated by it and curious, and there's lots of speculation, and nobody's got all of the truth. Well, that's why you're here this morning, to hear the truth. Yeah, no. You'll hear my opinions on things, and I would imagine that even amongst the five or six pastors we have in our church, that we have different views on some aspects of it. But we're all curious about it, aren't we? We all want to know about 666 and is the European Union, is that the ten-horned beast out of Daniel chapter 7 and are there signs before his coming and, you know, is there a millennium or isn't there? And there is a rapture, but does the rapture happen before the tribulation? Does it happen halfway through the tribulation? Or does it happen at the end of the tribulation? <clears throat> Don't know. I mean, I've got a view, but you can't be dogmatic about it because there are very good followers, passionate followers, Bible believers who have a different view. And they might be right and I might be wrong. And, um, but we all agree on this. Jesus Christ is coming again. He's coming physically, he's coming visibly, and he's coming gloriously. And he's not coming silently. This passage says that he'll come with a loud command. There'll be the voice of the archangel, be the trumpet blast of God. That doesn't sound silently to me. Sounds like it's going to be a fanfare. It also says that whether we are dead or alive, we will be raised or raptured and we will meet the Lord in the air in the clouds. And we're going to be with him forever after that. Whether it's on the earth in a millennial reign, which is what I think, or whether it's simply a new heaven and a new earth and we're reigning with him on the new earth, which is ultimately where the scriptures take all of our views. So we're talking about that. Let me give this also a word of balance, if you like. If we talk about prayer or call a prayer meeting, then people groan and few people turn up for the prayer meeting. Talk about prophecy and suddenly we're all stimulated and we're all in the rooms packed out. Now, why is that? Why are we so curious and speculative about the second coming and those truths? But when it comes to real spiritual reality, the force of power of prayer, we're so reluctant. Well, there is an enemy and there is a fallen world, but... It seems to me that we, whatever we teach about the second coming, it needs to have some personal, present application to how we live now. It's not just about academic head knowledge. It's about arguing about what we think is going to happen in the future. It's got to impact our lives, which is where this passage goes. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Build one another up with these words. Because Jesus is coming, it should make a difference now in what I'm doing. Because he's coming regardless of whatever view you have. Well, let's read 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 13 and following. And you'll find, if you read through the Scriptures in a consecutive order, that in chapter 4 and chapter 5, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, in those four chapters, Paul will give details about this truth, about the second coming of Jesus and the Antichrist and the son of lawlessness and the Lord Jesus coming in power and judgment. 
So you can read ahead if you like. The scripture says, brothers and sisters, verse 13, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. That's its application. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left on earth until the coming of the Lord, we will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. It would appear that the Thessalonian Christians had their young believers, but it would appear that the Apostle Paul had certainly given them some teaching on this truth of the Lord's return and associated matters. And they had a couple of different responses to it. One response, which we'll find out more in a few weeks, is that some of them said, well, if Jesus is coming and he's coming soon, I don't have time to waste going to work. I'm going to stop going to work and I'm just going to invest my life and time in telling people about Jesus. And then, of course, over a period of time, no worky, no income, end up no foodie. And so now you're hungry. And so now what do you do? Well, you knock on the door of the local Baptist pastor, uh, the local church. You go to your rich brothers and sisters in Christ and you, in desperation, say, can you support me? And they did. And, but now this was only in the beginning stages in this letter. By the second letter, this has become a full-blown problem. There were many Christians, or a significant number of them, not working and now living off, sponging off other Christians who felt obligated that they should be supporting them, when really what Paul says is they should tell them to get back to work and to live your life in light of the truth that Jesus is coming, but until then, do what you're supposed to be doing. That's how some of them responded. There was another response, which was one as anxiety and fear, and that is, Jesus is coming. We know that and believe that. And those of us who are alive when he comes, we'll meet him and we'll be with him forever. But what about the Christians who have died? Do they miss out because they're gone? What happens to them? And so Paul writes to address that question. In the paragraph I just read to you, he gives his answer. And the answer is, of course, no, they don't miss out. Because if we, as believers in the Lord Jesus, when we die, our spirit, our soul, our non-material part of us goes to be with the Lord. <clears throat> our physical part, we bury or we cremate or um, dispose of in the sea, <coughs> whichever one. We as people have two parts, simplifying it, but I think being clear and and balanced, I think we can all agree on this, we have at least two parts to us. We have a physical external part, we have a body, some of us magnificent bodies, some of us not, and we all have another part to us which is our non-material part, our personality, our psyche, our spirit, our soul, our emotions, our mind, our, all of that, put it all together. And it's that non-material part of us which is the real us, that's the real you, that's the real me. This outward thing is my body, but it changes as I age. 
So does my non-material part. It grows and learns and develops and so on. But the real me, the real you, is that non-material part. We all agree with that, don't we? And so when you die, death is the separation of those things. The soul, the non-material part, separates from the physical part. And if you're a believer, the non-material part, I believe the Bible teaches, goes to be with the Lord Jesus, just like he says in John 14. And the physical part that we said we dispose of here. Then what happens? <clears throat> well, when Jesus comes back, the passage says, if you look at it carefully, those who are with him, believers, in the departed state, in their non-bodied state, they come back with Jesus. And when Jesus gets here, then there is his voice, the voice of the, the, voice of the archangel, and the trumpet call of God, and there is a resurrection. All of the bodies of all of the Christians from here till the last 2,000 years and believers before Jesus came, Old Testament believers, they get resurrected. Their bodies which have been buried and decomposed, their bodies which have been cremated, their bodies which have been buried in the sea and eaten by fish, and then you ate the fish. I don't know how God's going to do it, but he's going to do it because he's God. And he says he's going to give us back these bodies. But these bodies improved. Mark 2, version 2. No freckles, no pimples, no moles, no skin cancers. I don't think. I don't have any details on it. I'm just living in hope that that's what it's going to be like. But it's going to be a perfected body, like this one but different, raised to another level. And then there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. So Jesus comes back. There's a resurrection of the dead who are believers in Jesus and their bodies are reunited with their non-material part and they are then forever a bodied person throughout eternity <clears throat> a glorified body a resurrection body what about those of us who are alive until the coming of the lord well the passage says and 1 corinthians 15 explains for us we don't miss out they get resurrected and we get raptured we get transformed instantly we'll be here one second and next second we'll be in the clouds in our new resurrected body as I said in the first service, if you read, uh, I think, the Left Behind series and if you watch the movies, you know, like A Thief in the Night or something, then there's going to be a pile of clothes on the ground and the body's gone. Which raises the disturbing question that when we have our resurrection body, will we be clothed? And the answer, let me comfort you, is that yes, you will. You get a new body and a new wardrobe instantly. Trust me on that. Um, okay, makes sense. I'm getting fatigued. What happens if they're not Christians? Well, the Bible says also that the unbeliever will be resurrected, but to appear before a great white throne and for judgment. As I had a sister come to me after the first service, so let me share her question and my answer. Uh, she came and she asked a very good question, which was, uh, what about believers who have died and they've gone to heaven with Jesus? Can they see us now and are they praying for us now? It's a good question, isn't it? What did I say? Well, I said, factually, we don't know. The Bible doesn't say. Probably, they can't see us. They're not watching us. And if they're praying for us, they could probably remember us. Luke 16 talks about the rich man in Hades who could remember that he had five brothers or something. But that's the only clue we've got. God hasn't told us. So the technical answer is we don't know. 
We certainly ought not to pray for those who have departed because their eternal state is already sealed. It's not a prayer that God can answer, whichever way you're praying. And I don't think they pray for us. That's my opinion. But that's all it is, an opinion. Let's move on. What should we do with this truth? Well, the personal application is that we should take hope and comfort from it. Jesus is coming and we need to be ready for him. Um, and then regardless of whatever happens in our life, he is the one who is in control and he will, when he comes, take us to be with him. That gives us great security and great hope. The Apostle Paul goes on in chapter 5 to say, you don't need us to write to you about times and seasons. Clearly, somebody had come to Thessalonica and had disturbed them. If you read ahead to Thessalonians chapter 2, there had been some false prophets had come, there had been some sort of letter writing that had gone on and some sort of statements that the day of the Lord has already come. You missed it. Jesus is already here. And that was upsetting them. And Paul writes to them to say, when Jesus comes, he's going to come physically, gloriously and, you know, suddenly. And you'll see him. You seen him? No. Well, he hadn't come yet. So he writes to them saying, when Jesus comes, he'll come like a thief in the night. Not for us, but like a thief in the night for those who are not believers. For those of us who are believers, we are sons and daughters of the light, and we know he is coming. We don't know the day, we don't know the time, but we know he's coming. And so we won't be caught off guard like surprised by a thief because we'll be active in about the Lord's business. We'll be puring out, firing ourselves as he is pure, and we'll be working for him, laboring for him, and it won't be in vain, 1 Corinthians 15. So when Christ comes, he will come suddenly, There'll be no escape, the Apostle Paul says in chapter 5 and verse 3. Suddenly, inescapably, and he will come as a thief for those who are not followers in the Lord Jesus. But for us, he's like the returning bridegroom coming to, to meet and capture his bride. He will come wonderfully for us and he will take us to be with him. In the middle of that chapter 5, in that passage, 5 to 11, there are these um, wonderful verses. Verse 9. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the comfort. God is at work and he has appointed us for salvation through Jesus. God hasn't appointed us for wrath. Verse 10. He died for us. Why? So that whether we are alive, awake, or asleep, died, whether we are living or deceased, he died for us so that we may live together with him. He lived so we can live. He died, we will probably die. And as he rose from the dead, we will rise from the dead. As he got a new body, we will get a new body. And he will call us and take us to be with himself. Verse 11, therefore encourage one another build each other up just as in fact you are doing when a believer in the lord jesus dies we can offer great hope that there will be a glad reunion that this life is not the end but it's a different story it's as much sadder story when an unbeliever dies because while we cannot pronounce upon them where they have gone only god knows that ultimately nonetheless we have no reason to extend hope we can only commit them to a god who is just and who is merciful and God will always do that which is exactly right. He's the God of the whole earth, and he will never do anything wrong. 
And that's the reply and the answer to give to what happens to the people who die in some nation that have never had the gospel preached to them. God will do the right thing. God is talking to them. God is revealing himself through creation. God is sending missionaries. God will work his purposes out and he invites us to be involved in that. Let's move on. Christ died for us and rose again so that we can live for him and live with him. That's the point. Full obedience, serving the Lord Jesus and encouraging and stimulating one another to continue to do that. The Drake Hotel, which some of you may know through the Mission Impossible movies in Chicago, in July 1959, which is a long time ago. Who was alive in 1959? We seven. Back in 1959, Queen Elizabeth. Does everybody know who Queen Elizabeth is? Just checking. Was going to Chicago for a royal visit. And the whole city was on the alert. All of the motels and hotels were alerted that the Queen was coming and it wasn't yet sure where she would be staying. You know, the, um, the dock at the, where her ship would be coming in was all prepared and fixed up and all the litter bins throughout the city were painted and cleaned and... Red carpet was ready to be rolled out and, as I said, the hotels and motels were contacted. When the manager of the Drake Hotel was contacted, he said this. We are making no plans for the Queen. Our rooms are always ready for royalty. It's a good answer, isn't it? That's what our lives should be like. Our lives are always ready for the coming of the Lord Jesus. He will find us doing what we ought to be doing. Billy Graham was asked a question once, and I'm not sure if he's quoting somebody else, he probably is, but his answer to the question, if you knew Jesus Christ was coming back in three days, if you knew in that time he was, what would you do? If you knew Jesus was coming back on Wednesday, what would you do? What would you do, Michael? Thank you. What would you do? Stop doing everything, not bother going to work, you wouldn't do that. You would go and tell everybody, wouldn't you? You'd be making a lot of phone calls. You'd be doing a whole lot of stuff. Billy Graham said, if I knew Jesus was coming back in three days, I would spend the first two days preparing and on the third day I would preach the gospel. What a wise man. What's he saying? He's saying, I would continue doing what I am doing. I am living my life to please the Lord. This is what he wants me to do. I will keep doing that. If you're a mechanic for the... If you're a mechanic, you're a disciple disguised as a mechanic and you know Jesus coming back in three days, continue to be a mechanic. He called you to be one. He placed you to be one. Be a good one and be doing that when he comes back. Don't abandon your post like the Thessalonians did and don't change tack. Do his will each and every day. It's a great answer and that's the implication of this passage for us. He died for us. He lives again in order that we might live with him and for him. To God's will. Next paragraph. <clears throat> Changing the, from the stir fry, let's go over to the salad. Chapter 5, verses 12 and 13 talks about our responsibilities towards our leaders. The Thessalonian church was a very young church. Um, I'm just trying to figure the time out because I can't waffle on forever. Um, and nonetheless they still had some leaders they're not called pastors or elders at this stage but they are leaders just like 
as I said in the first service, just if we planted a church, if we had a brand new church somewhere, we wouldn't put a, probably not have a pastor in there and you certainly wouldn't have elders in there, but you would have a steering committee. You'd have one person, maybe a pastor or a church planner or something, but the rest of the people around him would be people who are committed to the work and they'd be serving on this leadership committee, this team. That's the common way of doing it. They're not the ultimate leaders, they're the personal uh, current leaders. And then when the church is actually established, then the church would recognise their leaders from amongst themselves. So the church is at that sort of stage. And Paul writes to the Thessalonians and says to them that these guys have a role to be working hard, to be caring for you and admonishing you in verse 12. Your attitude to them should be one where you know them, you acknowledge them, recognise them, affirm them, respect them, and that you hold them in high regard in love because of the work. They're in a position, and because of the position, they get respected. Whether you respect them personally is another thing. But because they're in that position, they are to be held in high regard, pray for them, support them. They're appointed by God. Um, they are fallen human beings. They're not infallible or perfect. They will make mistakes, which just means that when you approach them and speak to them, you are to do so respectfully, loving them, caring for them, and so on. Maybe that's a word that you need to take on board of your attitude towards the pastoral team or the management team or leaders in our church, to hold them in high regard. And then the Apostle Paul says, and to live in peace. I'm a dad. I'm a granddad. When I was only a dad and I had a couple of young kids at home, then I would certainly teach and require of them that if ever there was an issue, that they would have to talk it out. We used to hold family conferences. Anybody could call a family conference, and normally if you called a family conference, something was wrong. It was either something was wrong or we were discussing we were going to be doing something. And sometimes at a family conference, one of the kids might talk about that they were angry or they're upset or disappointed with something, either what I've done or mum's done or brother or sister has done, whatever it is. It's the opportunity for us to talk openly and honestly about an issue that was in our family. But one of the things they were never allowed to do was to speak disrespectfully or defiantly. You can be angry and you can be upset, but you must be controlled. And I used to teach my kids that. My wife is still teaching me that. So too with elders and pastors in the church. You might be upset, you might be disappointed. Speak to them. But speak respectfully. Respect with esteem and for love for them. But bring the word of correction. We make mistakes. We're not infallible, as I said. And our role, our job, is certainly to do it with you. Lovingly, gently, respectfully, always. Trying to encourage one another to move towards being mature in the Lord Jesus. And the Apostle Paul says, and to live in peace. Well, that goes to all relationships. And it's often the little things. Don't let the little things go by. Nip them in the bud church in New York City, they divided over a little thing. They divided over whether we should have uh, red hymn books or blue-coloured hymn covered hymn books. Red or blue, isn't that stupid? Red for the blood of Christ, blue for the royalty of Christ. And people felt very seriously and very strongly about such a small issue. But that's what we're like because we're all different. We all have different personalities and backgrounds and interests and we're at different levels of maturity in Christ. And sometimes it's the little things that can get blown all out of proportion, red or blue. How silly. Let's try that. Who prefers red hymn books? 
Nobody. Who prefers blue hymn books? One person. <laughs> the Lord bless you, Katie. Let's try that again. Who likes maroon? <laughs> Who likes blue? Ah, see, even in our own church. Little things. Live in peace with one another. Let the peace of Christ, Paul says in Colossians, rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. I need to hasten. Verses 14 to 15 give rapid fire about our responsibilities to one another. Not only live in peace, but warn the idle, encourage the disheartened, help the weak, be patient with everyone, no paybacks, and strive to do good to all. It's worth looking at very carefully. But I emphasise for you what stood out for me. Be patient with everyone. Be patient with everyone. Patient. In helping the weak, in encouraging the disheartened, in warning the idle, patient. Give time. Be patient with everybody. Driving home after church, behind a flop and slow driver, be patient with everybody. When you've got a merge in traffic, let them in. Be patient with everybody. That's just one of the outworkings. Help those who are weak, but be patient with everybody. I didn't read this in the first service, but when it comes to getting beside one another, whether it's warning, encouraging, helping, or just being patient with one another, see, it's not one thing fits all. We have to adapt and go with the flow of what's going on in this person's life and how do I respond to it. Joseph Bailey, who lost three of his sons at different times, but nonetheless in his life, wrote a book called The Last Thing We Talk About. And in the book he writes these very powerful words. He says this, I was sitting, torn by grief. Someone came and talked to me of God's dealings, of what happened and of the hope we have beyond the grave. He talked constantly. He said things that I knew that were true. I was unmoved, except for the wish that I, I wanted him to go away. And he finally did. Another person came and sat beside me. He didn't talk. He didn't ask leading questions. He just sat beside me for an hour, a bit more. He listened when I said something, he answered briefly, he prayed simply, and he left. I was moved, I was comforted, and I hated to see him go. Powerful words, aren't they? Job's three friends came to minister to him, and the best time was the first week because they sat with him and didn't speak when they started speaking that the problems came and poor Job just felt terrible. Be patient with everyone. Speak the truth and wherever that person's at, whatever their need is, be discerning and help one another follow Jesus more closely. Verses 16 to 22 likewise give us a list of responsibilities uh, towards God. I'll just mention these and get, move on a bit. Our responsibility to God is to rejoice always, to pray without ceasing, and to be thankful in all situations, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. Don't quench the spirit, don't despise prophesying, test and evaluate everything, hold on to what is good and reject what is evil. A lot of things, but it's all our responsibility to God. Rejoice always does not mean put on a happy face and never be sad. It's not saying that. What it's saying is, even in the midst of sadness and disappointment, even in the midst of persecution or trouble, which is the Thessalonian context, rejoice in the fact that you know God 
and that God is in control. And this may not be good or nice, and you may not be enjoying it, but you can be glad and relieved he is in control. He is working his purposes out. Rejoice always in the Lord. Rejoice in what he is doing and trust him in it. Pray always does not mean to pray without ceasing, you know, to non-stop, do nothing else. It means if you get a cold or something, you have a hacking cough, it's like that. It's, it's incessant. It's frequent. It just never goes away. You cough, 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 cough. Well, that's how we should pray. Pray, pray, pray. Pray, pray, pray. Short prayers, long prayers, intermittent prayers, praying on the road, praying in all situations. Pray. Read books on prayer and encourage yourself in it. Rejoice always, pray always, and give thanks in all circumstances. Don't quench the spirit. Let God continue to work in us, particularly through his word and him speaking through other people. And be aware that there are imposters and false people around. Last thing. Verses 25 to 27. Three final requests. Having given us all of this, Paul says, marvellously, here is this mature saint following Jesus now for 10, 20 years, whatever it is, <clears throat> maybe longer. And he writes to these young Christians, verse 25, pray for us. Pray for one another. He does that in every letter that the Apostle Paul writes. He asks people, pray for me. And we need to do that. We need to be praying for one another. It's part of our vision for our church. And then next thing he says is, verse 26, and greet one another. Greet one another. See one another. Acknowledge one another. Affirm one another. Don't ignore one another. Don't snob one another. Don't avoid one another. Be gracious. Be patient with everyone. Greet one another. And the passage actually says, you ready? You didn't do it in the first service. It says, greet one another with a holy kiss. Come on. Once again, Charlie's disobeying the word of God. <laughs> now, this is clearly a passage where the command is greet one another. How do we do that? Well, there is a cultural indication here. They do it by kissing one another. It's a holy kiss. We do it in other ways, don't we? You know, a royal handshake, a punch in the arm, or whatever it is that we do. If you really want to know, probably the holy kiss was men to men, women to women. Lips to lips. We need to model it for the church. That would be incredibly uncomfortable, wouldn't it? But the command is, greet one another. Don't walk past one another. Just nod. Even a look and a nod and a grunt or a groan. Greet one another. And the last thing he says is, make sure you read the Bible in church. Read this letter in your church. And that's what we do. Take God's word seriously. Commit yourself to it. Well, that's a lot of information. Here's the review, and then I'm stopping. When a believer dies, they go to be with the Lord Jesus. When Jesus comes, their bodies will be raised, and the living bodies will be transformed into new resurrection bodies, and there will be all this family reunion. will be together and with the Lord forever. Don't forget that truth and comfort one another always with that truth. Jesus is coming. When Jesus does come, he will come for, and the unbelievers, it'll be unexpected. They will be caught off guard and it will be inescapable. 
And as we'll lead next week, learn next week, he will come in judgment for them. The Lord Jesus died to save us so that we could live with him, but we could also live for him in the here and now. He wants us and requires us to respect our leaders, to esteem them and hold them in high regard. He, wants, he gives us responsibilities towards one another, that we are to live in peace, that we may have to warn or encourage or rebuke or correct or help, but in all things to be patient with everyone. No paybacks. You hurt me, I'm going to hurt you. None of that. And having a mindset which is, I want to do that which is the best for the other, to help them be closer to Jesus. We have a responsibility to God to rejoice in him, to pray often, unceasing, always, to be thankful, always, to not to quench the Spirit's work in us, but to be discerning and wise. Pray for one another, greet one another, and read the Bible. It's a lot. Which parts of that does God want you to be working on in your life? I'll leave that for you to discern. And share and encourage one another. Ask each other, what are you going to work on? And then ask each other, check on it again next week. Let's pray. Thanks, Heavenly Father, for your word. And there's lots of instructions for us today. Can you give us clarity in our thinking to discern which part of all of that you want us to be working on? Speak to us, Lord, and change us for Jesus' sake. Amen. We're going to sing and then we'll come to communion.